Greer MLB Show is brought to you by SeatGeek, the best app for buying and selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, and more. For $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase on any game or sporting event, use promo code RINGERMLB. Download the SeatGeek app or go straight to SeatGeek.com. It is a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better podcast that I go to than I have ever known. This is the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman, and I am a staff writer at the Ringer. As always, we are part of the Ringer Podcast Network, home to the Ringer NBA show, where if you're not sick of the Boston Celtics winning, you can listen to brand new NBA content throughout the playoffs. And it is my pleasure to inform you of our motherland's latest achievement, the music podcast on shuffle with host Micah Peters and over at the ringer.com. We've got plenty of sports gambling content uh, in the wake of the Supreme court's decision in Murphy v. NCAA. Uh, we're going to talk about that with Brian Curtis a little later on the show in the baseball department. We've got stories on Jose Altuve and how his slump is nothing to worry about. Ben Lindbergh and I both wrote about major league baseball's no hitter epidemic and Claire McNear spent some time with Philly's manager, Gabe, Kapler, one of our favorite people on this site. I'd encourage you to check out all of that and more on TheRinger.com. Coming up on this podcast, we'll have Ringer editor-at-large Brian Curtis on to talk about the Supreme Court's gambling ruling and some of the unique historical precedents of gambling with baseball and what that might mean for baseball and sports media going forward. Meg Schuster will join me a little bit later on to talk about Twins pitcher Fernando Romero and his showdown with Angels two-way sensation Shohei Otani. Uh, she was in the park on Sunday to witness that, so we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But first, we have breaking news. Mariner's second baseman Robinson Cano has tested positive for the diuretic furosemide. And on to talk about that and the short, medium, and long-term implications, as always, is our leadoff hitter, Zach Cram. Zach, how you doing? I'm okay. How are you? I am doing better than Robinson Cano. We were going to talk about Manny Machado and his exceptional season in the Baltimore Orioles' uh, shocking winning streak, but uh, as we were like, I don't know, 20 minutes before we started recording, the news of Robinson Cano's uh, 80-game PED suspension broke, and uh, we, like REO Speedwagon, will roll with the changes. So that's what we're talking about now. Um, This sucks. It does suck. That was kind of my first reaction, too. It's it's crushing, both from a long-term perspective, which we'll get to, and for an immediate-term perspective. Cano, we already knew, was going to miss probably a month or so after he broke his hand over the weekend being hit by a pitch. But Cano's really fun to watch. He has that kind of smooth swing that we talked about last week that's so typical of the best left-handed hitters in baseball. And he's just having a typical, consistent Robinson Cano season, hitting almost 300. He has an OPS around 130. He's on a three or four war pace. It's a typical Robinson Cano season, and I was kind of shocked by the news when I saw it about to drive in this morning. The most amazing thing about this, like I'm almost less shocked that he uh, uh, that he tested positive than I was that he was going to end up on the DL. So he's played 150 games literally every year since 2006, which is just outrageous durability for a major league player at any position of any kind of, you know, any kind of player. And the fact that he's missing obviously hurts the Mariners who are probably relying on like Marco Gonzalez as their second best pitcher right now and are somewhat in 
a contention for the wild card spot, but really needed their lineup to be producing from one through mm-hmm. nine. Uh, so if you look at the standings right now, ignoring the Mariners, even though Cano doesn't eliminate them from contention, just ignoring them for a second, the Angels or Astros, whoever isn't leading the division, has a four-game lead over the next wild card team. To say nothing of the Red Sox or Yankees, who are even further ahead, that's a really sizable lead even this early. In the National League, for comparison, eight teams are closer than that to a wild card spot. So this is, I guess if you want to say it's good news for anyone, it's probably good news for the Angels, who we don't really expect to hold off Houston the entire year. But that's not necessarily the top concern at the moment when a player of Cano's caliber gets suspended for 80 games. Yeah, just looking at the baseball prospectus playoff odds. This is before Tuesday's action. Uh, the Astros are at ninety six or ninety five point six percent. The Angels are at forty four percent. The Mariners are at thirty point eight percent. And this, you know, this feels like the classic Mariners season where they are in it and they, it just feels like they're hanging around. They wind up with eighty four wins, and you know, I guess if there's this is sort of ripping off the Band-Aid because, I mean, they're bringing up, I saw Gordon Beckham's luscious flowing locks in, in the Mariners' dugout the other day, and uh, that's is that second base for the next 80 games now? Because he can serve the suspension concurrently with his injury. Uh, but, I mean, it takes him out for most of the rest of the season. It takes him out for the playoffs if they make it that far. This is, you know, this is huge. They could always move D. Gordon back to second base and re-sign Ichiro to play in the outfield. But I uh, oh <laughs> I imagine that ship has probably sailed. Yeah, it seems like they're going to try to address it in-house. I think Gordon Beckham was actually hitting pretty well in the minor leagues for whatever little that's worth. But they'll have... Good, uh, <laughs> you, you can take your Gordon Beckham stock and... Uh... They'll have Andrew Romine, who can play pretty much any position. It seems like they're hesitant to move Gordon back to the infield just because... Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. They acquired him as an outfield experiment, and even though uh, earlier turns in center field aren't promising, it seems like that's where they want him long-term. And I think, like you said, the Mariners aren't necessarily in the race as much as they would need to be to really make a splash and try to acquire a quality second baseman from another team. It seems like they'll have to address it in-house for a while, and all of a sudden, this lineup that ideally would have been strong 1-9 to has some holes at the bottom. Their left fielders aren't hitting at all, even with Ichiro gone. Now there's another hole at second base. Mike Zunino is quite literally a swing or miss in any given game. So all of a sudden, you're removing the three-hole hitter from a solid lineup, and there are holes there now. The other thing about the Mariners is they don't like you think about there are teams that would have a surplus to at in the middle infield position to to deal from um the Mariners don't have prospects to go get them like this is probably the worst uh worst farm system in baseball I don't know where like what you can give up to go get you know, somebody, you know, you think if if the Phillies uh, decided Scott Kingery's ready to take over at second base full time and want to deal Cesar Hernandez, for instance, like, I don't know, what does Kyle Lewis get you at this point? What does Evan White get you? Like, this is, there's not a, there's like this, this sense that you can always go and get a player for nebulous prospects, but the Mariners don't really have that. If, if they, you know, can absorb this and get to the point where they're still in it in July. We need something to make the what did Jerry DePoto song come alive again. But I know uh, <laughs> my my mandolin has been in storage all season. 
they have unsurprisingly too many first base DH types on their roster and not enough guys who can actually play positions up the defensive spectrum. Andrew Romine should not be a starter right now. He was sort of their utility player at every single position. Maybe Taylor Motter plays more, but you're really you know shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic at that point if that's the kind of player you're counting on, even my uh, minor league love, apparently, for Gordon Beckham aside. I think we're we're pretty much in agreement that this isn't the torpedo below the, the below the waterline for the Mariners. You know they can hang in, but it's this is a huge blow. Like the, you know if they're they're slit, you know their their uh, dark horse AL West chances got just got a lot darker with Cano out of the lineup. One area where you and I surprising, well, I don't know if it's surprising we disagree, but we disagree a lot is uh, what this might do to Cano's Hall of Fame candidacy. So, uh, you know, I think it's not going to be that big a deal, or I think the biggest deal is just the these games missed. Like, it's going to take him out of the lineup. Um, it's going to remove that veneer of consistency. It's going to make it harder for him to get to 3,000 hits. But you think that there's going to be an actual penalty because he tested positive enough to make the difference between him making the Hall of Fame and not. Yeah, I think that is a potential to happen to take a step back. He wasn't necessarily found uh, guilty of taking performance enhancing drugs. He was caught taking a diuretic, which is commonly used. Furosemide. Yes. I, I <laughs> went out of my way to look it up on, on YouTube, how to pronounce it. So I'm definitely saying it on the pod now. So that is apparently a common masking agent for PD use. And as uh, TJ Quinn of ESPN noted on Twitter, just because you're found to have this substance in your system doesn't mean you're suspended. An independent arbiter would need to rule that Major League Baseball had sufficient evidence to show that Cano was using this as a masking agent. So that, I guess, uh, logistical terminology aside, I think in either case, it would have roughly the same effect on Cano's candidacy. And I do think it's a stronger impact than you do just because even as some voters, the the electorate has changed and some voters have become more lenient about voting for players with performance enhancing drug suspicions, they've still drawn a pretty bright line between players who were suspected of taking drugs in the 90s when it was kind of a free-for-all and players who were suspended post-2004, post the new stricter drug testing and someone like Manny Ramirez, who, drug testing aside, would have been a clear first ballot Hall of Famer. He's been on the ballot for two years and barely cracked 20%. Rafael Palmero is in the same boat. He never broke 15% in four years on the ballot before fading off entirely as he fell below the minimum threshold. I think the jury is still out on players like Alex Rodriguez, who still will have their cases be heard as post-2004 positive test guys, but unless the electorate changes wildly, which I think you think will happen, I there's still a, a barrier between before the early 2000s and after in terms of guys who tested positive. I think time is just so comprehensively on Cano's side right now. Um, it's not like he's if he's got 10 years on the ballot, he's probably got another five years in the big leagues if he if he wants to. And one imagines that he will play out his entire contract, which takes him through his age 40 season at 2023. Um, maybe he's good enough to stick around as a as a bench bat for a couple years after that. Like we could be, you know, 
close to 2040 by the time he's off the ballot. And by that time, you know, a lot of the stick in the muds will be, uh, you know, a lot of the PED skulls will be out of the game. And the other thing, I think the biggest thing is there hasn't been anybody who's tested positive who everybody likes. Certainly not as much as everybody seems to like to know who has had a legitimate Hall of Fame case. Like you think, um, you know, I think David Ortiz is, you know, there are people who have been credibly and like not even like the the Jeff Bagwell, uh, you know, oh, he was muscular in the 90s. So we're going to keep him off. Uh, you know, that's come and gone. Pudge Rodriguez, who is, you know, I think it's more likely than not that the Pudge Rodriguez was, was using PEDs. This has never been about drug testing to me. This has been about because, you know, guys like. Because David Ortiz is going to get a pass. If Andy Pettit doesn't get in, it's not going to be because he used drugs. It's because he was sort of that edge case. And like Nelson Cruz is not going to have the numbers. Bartolo Colon's not going to have the numbers. Guys who you know, guys who tested positive and aren't going to make the Hall of Fame because of that are going to be guys like A-Rod and Manny and Rafael Palmero, who just we don't like for some reason. And I think that, you know, you look at uh Writers find you know the the writer found Andro in Mark McGuire's locker in 1998, and nobody gave a shit. And it only became an issue when Barry Bonds broke the record, and everyone hated Barry Bonds. And you know people don't like Roger Clements, and I think all of this people don't like a Rod. You know Manny is has a reputation for being an airhead, um, but everybody loves David Ortiz, and he's going to skate. Everybody loves Pod Rodriguez and he's going to skate. And I think if if you draw the line at he tested positive, I don't agree with that. I think it's persnickety. I think it's haughty. I think it's extra judicial, but I can respect that opinion because it's intellectually consistent. But I think so much of this PED hysteria is just we don't like the people who were who were caught using it and the rest is backfill. And I think once the once the writers who drove that wagon Throughout the 90s, <clears throat> sorry, throughout the 2000s, they're going to be retired if they're still alive by 2040, by the time Cano gets onto the ballot and or by the time Cano falls off entirely. And like, I think so much of this is just a popularity contest and Cano is popular and he's going to have the numbers. He's going to get to 3000 hits probably. And I think if he does that and he sticks around past the first couple rounds of balloting, I don't think it's going to matter. The question then is what memories linger about Cano's career until 2030 or 2040. The 3,000 hits milestone is interesting. First, because as the electric changes, I wonder how much that milestone will matter anymore. I actually do think him missing 80 games has a sufficient impact there. Using uh, the Bill James favorite toy estimator, entering the season, Cano had roughly a 64% chance of hitting 3,000 hits. Now, obviously, if he's missing half a season, that's 80, 100 hits right there that he's going to lose. Mm -hmm. So that drops his odds maybe to 50-50. But even beyond that, Cano, over the last decade, 15 years, has had a just sort of an effervescent presence in the game. He's always smiling. He's really smooth as a player. He had the home run derby win with his dad. He was one of the best players on a World Series winner in New York, which will probably win him some intangible points. But then the question is, in 20 years, as you point out, how much will this discovery and the suspension mar what is otherwise a really positively remembered career? 
That's an interesting question. And I don't think either of us knows the answer right now. And it's a matter of, I guess I'm looking backwards to see how those cases have been adjudicated thus far. And you're looking forwards to predict, well, if the electorate changes in the ways we expect it to, maybe it won't matter as much. I don't know if that makes me right, but it certainly makes I think that makes my position easier to argue because it's unfalsifiable. Like, you know, we don't know what the what the uh, electorate's going to look like. You know, by the time Cano's got his 10 years off the ballot, I'll have a Hall of Fame vote. Ben will have a Hall of Fame vote. And, you know, I think the electorate's going to look a lot more like that than it does about, you know, I don't know. Uh, the I don't want to name names about the particularly uh, cranky, old, you know, crusty BBWAA guys. But, you know, a lot of those guys will be out of the picture by then. Um, so I, I just think... Our view on this is going to be a lot more NFL style where, you know, it's PED use is frowned upon. Everybody thinks it's cheating and there's a set punishment and you serve it and you move on. And, I, you know, that's the way I think baseball ought to deal with this. Although, you know, one thing that I think uh, I, I am with you in that I think missing these 80 games is going to have a big impact on um, on him making 3000 hits. Not that I think like. Cano's Hall of Fame case is sort of the same, you know, since 2014. But getting to that round number, I think, does carry uh, some emotional weight in a way that it would be difficult to keep him out if, uh, you know, if he was a borderline case. And I think, you know, this is somebody without any MVP awards, without any batting titles, you know, without, you know, I think he's got uh, two eight win seasons, four seven win seasons. And, you know, he's a guy who's just like the, He's more about, you know, he had a great peak, but his Hall of Fame case is more about longevity and consistency. Um, and without those those peaks, you know, he I think his case might be in jeopardy and he's going to need it. You know, he's going to need every little uh, benefit. And I think 3000 hits could be one of those things. And if this 80 game suspension is what what keeps him from getting there, you know, if he comes up getting 50 or 60 percent of the vote, then that might be what keeps him out. And I think we can both agree that while perhaps it isn't the the death knell for Cano's Hall of Fame chances, it is perhaps a bigger problem for Seattle as a franchise this year, which may be fitting above all else as their playoff drought reaches, what, 17 years now? So maybe yeah, maybe their playoff drought will be up by the time Cano reaches the Hall of Fame ballot. We can hope. Oh, boy. I, I mean, this is like my troll position that I'll never live to see the Mariners make a World Series, let alone win it. But um, those guys just can't catch a break right now. The NHL is apparently coming. You know, maybe, you know, we've seen what, what's happened in Vegas. You know, uh, if Seattle gets the same expansion draft rules, maybe you'll be so happy about your Stanley Cup wins that you don't care about the World Series drought. But man, my my heart goes out. You know, I feel bad for Robinson Cano, but my heart goes out to Mariners fans who just, you know, could have used anything to be happy about. The funniest part is uh, of this punishment is that, you know, Cano can't play in the playoffs if they make it that far. But Mariners fans only wished that punishment actually manifested. Yeah, I I think if I I think that's right. I think if that winds up the Melky Cabrera rule, which I keep forgetting about, if uh, if that winds up coming into play, then I think everybody might be weirdly okay with how how this shakes out. Exactly. All right. Well, maybe we'll get to Manny Machado next week. But until then, it's been very interesting talking about how it's been a while since we've had a, a 
you know, a real meaty PED scandal. So I'm, I'm happy to be able to talk about this one with you. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Zach Cram. Things are a little hairy for Robinson Cano and the Seattle Mariners right now. One of our sponsors this week is a company that knows a thing or two about hairy situations, and that is Backblade. Backblade 2.0 is the easiest do-it-yourself back and body shaver, period. If you're the kind of guy who's blessed with the, shall we say, Sean Connery-like approach to uh, hair on your torso, if you're afraid to take your shirt off at the gym or the pool, then it's time to escape your ape with the Backblade 2.0. The Backblade 2.0 comes with an ergonomically curved handle, giving you a full range of motion and allowing you to reach all those hard-to-reach areas. Backblade 2.0 also comes with two of their unique dry glide patented safety blades, which create the smoothest shave in just minutes and can be used both wet or dry. I can already think of about three or four friends of mine who have their fair share of back bush. Now, if you're tired of shaving your man's back for him, this might be the best upcoming Father's Day gift ever. Get your Backblade today at Backblade.com. Use promo code SHAVE30 and save 30% on a start bundle today. That's B-A-K-Blade.com. Promo code SHAVE30 because at Backblade, we've got your back. So my next guest is uh, Ringer Editor-at-Large, co-host of the Press Box podcast, and august thinking man, Brian Curtis. How you doing, Brian? The first two parts of that were right, and I'm doing great. Oh, stop it. I am doing fine. I am very excited to talk to you about gambling, which is something that I know very little about, but I do know that the Supreme Court, as of this week, has lifted the federal restriction on gambling on sports and the states are now free to make their own uh, laws involving sports betting. I wrote a little bit about this today. You wrote about it yesterday in terms of the media's influence on uh, on sports betting and the the tradition of sort of talking around it. So, you know, I guess we're going to talk about that a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit about um, the connection to baseball, because, you know, particularly uh, historically baseball and gambling are two things that, that have not mixed. So you know, why don't you start off with the media angle. Well, it's funny because I feel you and I have grown up in this world where there was a really long time uh, for us a couple of decades and for the rest of humanity, like the better part of a century, where there was lots and lots of sports gambling. But if you were in the polite media, which is to say television and print, as it was practiced in the sports page, you couldn't really talk about this, right? You could kind of wink at it like Brent Musburger and Al Michaels used to do on TV when there'd be a bad beat at the end of a football game. Uh, your local sports page would print the betting line in tiny agate type. But for a columnist to talk about, you know, the Vegas Super Contest in the way our boss does would be unthinkable, you know, and, and, and wagering on so many events, everybody would be horrified. Uh, and yeah. what's happened, I think, in the last, like, you know, 15 years, maybe a little more than that, uh, thanks to Simmons in part, thanks to people like Scott Van Pelt on ESPN, is gambling, uh, and specifically sports gambling, just became a subject of discussion. You could write about that. You could talk about that. You could be honest about it. You could say you were gambling. And I think the effect that had was just to kind of normalize uh, it in, you know, our little part of the culture, you know, long before this Supreme Court decision came down. You know, we talk about gambling mostly in terms of I feel like, you know, football would be the the big sport for gambling. You know, basketball to a lesser extent, certainly March Madness pools. And baseball has its own 
unique history because as much as the NBA has Tim Donaghy and you know there have been point shaving scandals in college basketball, there's nothing, there's no black eye really quite as bad as either Pete Rose or the Black Sox. And you go back and I wrote about this in in my story that like at the turn of the century, this you know gambling was an existential threat to baseball, which is you know an interesting. It's interesting because it feels like baseball, because it's so random, is is really difficult to gamble, gamble on. There's no, you know, the the point spread would never be more than a run, run and a half. You know, every game is so unpredictable. It'd just be a very difficult thing to to really bet on intelligently. Yeah, you know, and I think also just as you say, it has this great historical stain, right? This great, you know, cautionary tale where the, the it was the, what the guys did was so bad is they had to go hide in a cornfield for like eternity, you know, it only come out when someone in Iowa built the field. Right. But you're mm-hmm. right. You know, and college basketball had that too in the fifties, if I'm remembering correctly, you know, and that kind of thing. But yeah, you're right. The NBA doesn't have that. doesn't really, and it's funny, you know, it's like Adam Silver. It's, it's not a coincidence that Adam Silver was the commissioner who goes out and writes the big New York times op-ed that says, bring on the gambling. Uh, you know, we want this to be a part of the league. We think this increases interest in the league. And, and by the way, give us a cut. And we'll be happy. Yeah. It, what strikes me about that is, you know, the Donaghy st- scandal was, and we're getting a little far afield from baseball, but who cares? Um, the the gap between the Donaghy scandal and Adam Silver's op-ed was seven years. That feels like such a, I mean, it, it must be, you know, the changing media landscape to make that acceptable because seven years, like even nowadays, is not a very long time to really reverse the league's position on something like that. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And I think he's, you know, I think of, of of Adam Silver of all the commissioners, certainly more than uh, Manfred Goodell, you know, is very perceptive about what the media will tolerate, right? And where the media wants him to go and where, you know, I don't, I'm not sure he's a, you know, like a full-time resident of basketball Twitter, but the things he does sure, sure makes it seem like it, you know? And so, you know, for him to, for him to do that, I think was, was reading the tea leaves and reading where the media was going and where society was going. Absolutely. Do you think that there's a difference between, I mean, obviously there's a difference in like culturally, like basketball is right now more forward thinking. The big, you know, Adam Silver embraces gambling, but in baseball, you think of the commissioner, you know, the image of Bart Giamatti tearfully banning Pete Rose from baseball is is so powerful and ingrained in, in baseball fans' minds even 30 years later. And it just it's hard to imagine Major League Baseball, even several commissioners later, getting on board with something like that. Yeah, I think the weight of history kind of looms more on baseball, right, than these other sports. Mm -hmm. It feels like, you know, when Giamatti was doing that uh, with Rose and like with, you know, their attitude towards all these things, we could throw PEDs into this, you know, gunny sack, right, is like. We don't want something that's going to ruin everything that's come before. Right? <laughs> Baseball often thinks that way, right? If, if X happens, then decades of, of purity will be thrown in the toilet. And, you know, yeah. I can totally see them having that, that attitude toward gambling. Uh, I would not advise that attitude toward gambling now because that is not the reality we are now in after uh, Monday's decision. Yeah, I think part of it, too, is like the Giamatti model of commissioner. You know, he was an academic, very an academic steeped in his own literary tradition, very erudite. There's like he, Giamatti was really the the last romantic baseball commissioner, you know, sort of in the, the Ken Burns wistful looking back on on this sports great history kind of way. And now like Rob Manfred, I, you know, I think he's 
a little more of a stick in the mud than than Adam Silver, but they're both they're cut from the same cloth. They're businessmen, they're lawyers, they're you know labor negotiators. Really, you know, they're out to commercialize the sport as much as possible. And I think it's just hard to imagine Rob Manfred crying about anything, much less uh, punishing Pete Rose for his unique brand of of scumbaggery. Yeah, wasn't Giamatti the one that wrote about baseball fields as idyllic green spaces, right? You know, and, um, yeah, and that's, if that's your image, right, that usually does not, you know, have a, you know, include a bookie standing over in the corner you know, under right. a tree, right? It's not Eden or somebody's idea of Eden anyway. But yeah, I think that's right. And I think also with Manfred, like, you know, when you think about like BAM tech and stuff like that, they're thinking about baseball in, in a very kind of media savvy way too, right? Just by necessity of the world we live in. It's not here is a game that is incidentally covered by television and consumed by people various ways it, the the entire thing basically you know 90 percent of it right is how is baseball going to be consumed how are people going to pay for it who's going to watch it and all that stuff and that's mm-hmm. that's what modern commissioners have to think about that that's got to be most most of if not all their job one thing that i mentioned in my piece i'm interested to to hear your thoughts on it is the the idea that baseball actually had a championship throne like so we don't, I, and I feel like as much as you know, we've had movies and books and all sorts of discussion about this. Just because the Black Sox scandal is about as far removed from it, you know, almost literally a hundred years ago, it's as far removed from the present as it is from Napoleon. Um, that like we don't, we don't really talk about the fact that baseball had you know somebody threw the world series like this is just such an outrageous thing to have happened that it's it's almost incomprehensible you know it's hard to wrap your mind around it with you know with my 2018 brain yeah it is i mean i would say that like just you know in terms of when i grew up the fact that we had two late 80s movies about uh that scandal reminded us and then i think when you mentioned mm-hmm. like ken burnsy stuff right it just feels like that does, it seems incomprehensible that that actually happened and that somebody pulled that off, right? And, you know, with Ring Lardner, you know, going through the press box and all that, that just seems like another time and place. But on the other hand, baseball history is just feels like it's always so front and center that I feel like I've been, you know, without going out of my way to think about the black sex very much, I've been reminded of that again and again and again, you know, mm-hmm. over the years. Does it feel like, I wonder if some of it is just because baseball's history is so long and, and baseball's so much more obsessed with its own history than other sports. And I think that's what drew me to the game as opposed to, you know, like I played more hockey than baseball growing up, but like I always loved baseball because of its history. Some of these figures like Shoeless Joe Jackson, they feel like Abraham Lincoln, like almost like they only ever existed in history books. And uh, maybe that's why it doesn't feel quite as real. Yeah, I, I think that's totally right. What I was doing when I was when we were at Grayland, I did a piece called "Donating Your Body to Sports Writing," and I was talking about like athletes like Lance Armstrong these days who just do not stop giving interviews and recounting their shame over and over again, right? For us to, you know, to kind of, you know, enjoy perversely or whatever we do with it. And one of the funny things, I went to one of Shoeless Joe's biographers. And I said, "Did Shoeless Joe ever do this? Was there like a media tour, you know, when he was back in South Carolina?" And there was. And it was on the like giant on the front of sporting news. Shoeless Joe speaks out about the bad old days, you know, and he was kind of balding and out of shape and ugly and all this stuff. And, you know, the guy just walked in there and there he was. And let's let's talk about it. And, you know, like all this stuff we we are experiencing now, baseball has has experienced already was basically my takeaway from that. 
as much as baseball, you know, you think of baseball and gambling, you think of the Black Sox and Pete Rose and Hal Chase. That's not how they're going to interact going forward. It's going to be, you know, betting on your phone during the game, you know, as much as I think betting on baseball period is kind of a, a sucker's enterprise. How do you how do you imagine that, you know, once gamble if gambling sort of permeates uh, sports culture. How do you imagine that changing our jobs? That's a really good question. I guess like the 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 you know meta media question that interests me first of all is just how it changed the way we just consume baseball. And I think baseballs had what a thirty plus year dry run of this with fantasy baseball, right? Which is just legal, you know, semi legal gambling. And mm-hmm. you know, I think if we went to like Catfish Hunter in nineteen seventy five and said, "Hey, in ten years." people are going to be intensely interested in a performance like yours uh, during a game, except they're not going to really be rooting for your team. All they care about is like harvesting your statistics from this game, right? That is going to be incredibly interesting to people. Just what you do, that's how they're going to be consuming baseball. And then if we said, and then like 10 or 20 years after that, they'll be doing the same thing, but only one of your games, they won't care about your whole season. Like they will be like a daily fan thing, or they'll be using totally different metrics. I think he would have just found that to be incomprehensible. Right, like, wait, somebody's going to consume a baseball game like that. They're not going to care if I win or lose, or my team wins, or anything. So, mm-hmm. I think in a way, we've already kind of we're already kind of doing this, right? And you know, if anything, what the Supreme Court is going to do is just like take that to another level, mainly. But, you know, it's like I think one interesting thing is like, will there just be more interest in that Monday Cincinnati Reds, you know, Monday afternoon Cincinnati Reds game that is totally unwatchable? Well, I can answer that. There, will, There is no interest in the Monday Cincinnati Reds game now. There will definitely be more if anybody's betting on it. <laughs> yeah, right? So, I mean, it's like, and does that, you know, does, and I guess the other question for us media people that you bring up is like, what do people want from us in that world, right? Do they just want intel? You know, do they want... I, wor- I, I do worry about that. Do they want an edge? <laughs> right? What can you tell me, you know? Um, I guess they'll still pay attention to beat writers, right? Because those guys do you know, have a little, they'll pay attention to their Twitter accounts. Those guys will, you know, often have info. They'll pay attention to five thirty eight type outfits, right. That can tell them little mm-hmm. things, but, but yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe that reorients it. But again, like I said, I think we've, you know, we quote unquote, normal sports writers have existed alongside like fantasy for a really long time. So I'm not sure it's, you know, going to make us an endangered species or anything. Yeah. I hope not. Um, all right. Well, fair enough. Uh, thanks for coming on, Brian. This is a fascinating. This you know, this could be a watershed moment in uh, in the way we consume sports, or it could, like you said, not change our our day to day existence at all. So I'm eager to see uh, how that plays out. And uh, thanks for coming on and talk about it. And either way, I, I bet we'll have an irritatingly highbrow conversation about. It. Thanks. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know nobody else. You know, you and I are going to talk about the the way media is going to cover all this, and I know that eighty percent of our listeners don't care. So if yeah, you know, I hope you enjoyed Zach Cram, and I hope you you know you can fast forward to listen to Meg Schuster talk about actual baseball right after this. Want an unfair advantage to dominate your fantasy baseball league? Well, look no further and download SquadQL for free for your Apple and Android devices. SquadQL is the only mobile app you need to crush your friends and rivals this year. It recommends the best starting lineup each day based on your starters, bench players, and free agent pool. How does SquadQL actually do this? The app connects directly with your Yahoo, ESPN, and CBS leagues, pulling in your actual roster and your league scoring system. 
It also provides waiver wire recommendations, daily updates to player rankings, and much more. Head to the Apple app and Google Play stores to download SquadQL, your all-in-one fantasy baseball manager. SquadQL is brought to you by the creators of RotoQL, the leading daily fantasy lineup optimizer trusted by over 100,000 DFS players. You can also download RotoQL for free for both Apple and Android. My next guest is someone I've been wanting to have on the podcast for a while, and something happened in the baseball world on Sunday that makes her the perfect guest for today. I'm, of course, talking about Carlos Cortez's walk-off home run to lead my South Carolina Gamecocks over her Missouri (laughs) Tigers, Uh, but also Fernando Romero and Shohei Otani had a, a showdown in Anaheim on Sunday, and Megan Schuster was there to witness this. Welcome to the podcast, Meg. Thanks for having me. Can't wait to talk about my love of the twins. So you are, we've we've had numerous Ringer uh, staffers on the show and you're the first one, uh, at least that I can remember, who demanded an appearance <laughs> on the show. So much as your love for Fernando Romero. And this is a pitcher who, perhaps by virtue of, of pitching on the twins, uh, like I Google him and the first result for Fernando Romero is for an optometrist in the Houston suburbs. Oh boy. So why don't you tell us about Fernando Romero? Yeah, so Fernando Romero uh, is a great twins prospect. They called him up at the end of April to try and salvage something out of their lineup. Um, he's only 23 years old, which uh, makes me as a human feel inadequate, but also very optimistic about what he could turn into. Yeah, he's so watching him on on Sunday. He's got a really I mean, this is why he's exciting is that he is a power pitcher and the twins have traditionally um, through the Terry Ryan era have the Kyle Gibson types. Right. You know, yes. guys who pound the zone don't necessarily throw that hard, don't have big breaking balls. And Romero, like everything he throws like it's four seamer, uh, sinker, mm-hmm. slider, uh, sometimes a change up. Everything makes me want to make airplane noises. Like it, <laughs> you know, it's sort of into the into the zone. Yeah. So I got some great stats from uh, our very own Zach Cram. Romero is actually the hardest throwing pitcher in Twins history. The previous hardest uh, was Matt Garza, uh, who last pitched for the Twins in 2007. So that's great. Um, Romero's average fastball is 96.3 and Garza's was at 95. So he's significantly faster than anyone that the Twins have ever started, which is extremely impressive. And his changeup speed uh, is registering around 91.5, which was as fast as Glenn Perkins' fastball, which isn't great. (laughs) (laughs) Not great when your closer is fastball as your starting pitcher's changeup. and only two other active starters uh, have a changeup that's 91 or faster, and those are Garrett Richards and Noah Syndergaard. But he's not, you know, Richards and Syndergaard are both huge sort of tall and fall kind of pitchers. Right. Romero, like just his delivery, he's sort of, he's listed at six foot two fifteen. Um, he's got like this, like, I don't want to scare you as a Twins fan, but I promise <laughs> there was a time where Vance Worley was really good. And uh, oh, he sort of looks like Vance Worley plus five miles an hour on the fastball. And a lot of that is like that sinker action, that arm side run. Worley was great at um, at tailing the fastball back over the outside corner to right handers. And Romero's fastball, like on Sunday, at least his his command didn't look that good. But uh, mm-hmm. the movement was it was that kind of pitch. Yeah, he didn't have his uh, typical control, I guess. You know, he only went five innings. He threw like up over 90 pitches in those innings, um, gave up his first run in three games. So it wasn't his best outing by far, but 
Uh, I just find him so impressive with runners on base for such a young player who only has now three starts in the majors. Um, Whenever he had guys on base, he was just in lockdown mode. Uh, He's had, I guess, opposing hitters are just one for 20 against him with runners on base. Um, And he has nine strikeouts. So for a guy who's only 23 years old with three starts, I think that's really what impressed me the most. Obviously, there's a juxtaposition between him and Shohei Otani, and both of them gave up one run. Uh, both of them took no decisions in that Sunday game. How do you think he, you know, if you, this is the rule, if you see Otani, you come and talk <laughs> about it on the pod. Um, what did you think of Otani, and what did you think about how he matched up with Romero? Yeah, so I went into this matchup um, trying to be able to declare Fernando Romero as actually the best rookie pitcher in the AL. Um, so I went into it just slightly biased. Uh, but I mean, seeing Otani in person was just really stunning. He had 11 strikeouts in f- what, four innings, which is crazy to me. Um, only gave up three hits. Granted, the Twins offense that day was not exactly stellar. Uh, they didn't start Mauer. They started a couple guys that I have never heard of, and I'm a Twins <laughs> fan. So it um, wasn't their best uh, outing, but he had masterful control too. And it was so fun to be able to watch him in person. The big difference was in terms of like the type of fastball because Otani's Otani's fastball for as hard as he throws it, it's very straight. And there's a certain level to which like if your fastball is straight, it doesn't matter how hard you throw it, but you need mm-hmm. to locate it. And Otani's constantly like you probably couldn't see this from the stands, but just watching on TV, like it was just in the corner, in the corner, in the corner. Um and Romero didn't really have that pinpoint location, but he had so much late life on the fastball that he was eight, mm-hmm. like there was almost, you know, you would describe a pitcher like this as effectively wild. And he walked, you know, three guys for his third straight start. Um, mm-hmm. But there was so much movement on the fastball late that it was a very interesting contrast between sort of the precision of Otani and the uh, the movement, just the sheer, you know, power of, of Romero. Yeah, it was interesting because even though Romero faced so many batters in just five innings, it still never really felt like the Angels had him totally figured out, which I think speaks to your point about how much movement he got on there and just how almost like random it was and uh, all the different locations he can hit with that. Uh, The Angels still didn't have an answer for him, even though they were going, you know, third time through the order early in the game. He just uh, still had some stuff that totally locked them down. Yeah, you've gotten me excited about him. I was not, you know, I didn't know that much about Romero as as he was coming up. And there's still questions like, you know, you wonder any six foot power pitcher, you wonder if he is going to throw, you know, Romero, you wonder if he's going to throw enough strikes to stay in the rotation or if he's going to hold up. So we'll see, mm-hmm. you know, we'll see what teams start uh, start doing once he gets around the league. Maybe the command improves and he turns into, you know, every every so often the Twins crank out, you know, Francisco Liriano or Johan Santana. You know, you wonder if he's and this guy. And then they guy. trade him away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they could trade him away eventually. Um, one thing I want to ask you, the American League Central, we haven't really talked about it a whole lot on this pod. Um, it's a mess. You know, the, yeah. the Indians are in first place at, at exactly 500. You know, they're... <laughs> Three absolute dog shit teams in this division. Um, yeah, and the Twins, yeah. uh, you know, the Twins have to a certain extent gotten away with kind of an underwhelming start. So, how do you feel about the Twins right now? How do you feel about that race? Well, this is this is honestly really their specialty, right? Like start out average, somehow sneak into the playoffs or get close, uh, and you know exceed any 
metric that's telling you that they shouldn't be close, that they should be well, well under 500. I honestly, they continue to just fathom me year after year. I have no idea how they put up win streaks. Um, this year, especially too, they've been so up and down. They'll, you know, lose five games in a row, then come out and look like, you know, they're ready to take over the central. And it's honestly been surprising me that they're even in this conversation at this point and only one and a half games back when they're, you know, three games below 500. How do you feel about Fernando Rodney? You know, I was cautiously optimistic when they signed him, um, just because obviously our closer situation in the last few years has been completely subpar. But uh, I don't know. I I think I'm going to reserve judgment for a little while longer in this season. Okay, fair enough. All right. Well, uh, thanks for coming on. It's been I'm like you are so excited about Romero. You're as as excited about Romero as everybody else in our Slack channel is about Otani, <laughs> and it's been invigorating to to watch you experience him. So I'm glad you could yeah. come on and and share a little bit of that excitement with me and the listeners. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was fun. All right. All right, we'll have you back on uh, if Missouri and South Carolina face off in the SEC tournament. We'll talk about that. Can't wait. That'll do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Thanks to Zach Cram, Brian Curtis, and Meg Schuster for joining me today. Thanks to Robinson Cano, Shoeless Joe Jackson, Pete Rose, and Fernando Romero for providing content. Thanks to Jim Cunningham for stitching all this together. And thank you for listening. Enjoy this week's action, and we'll see you next time. Escape your ape with the Backblade 2.0, complete with an ergonomically curved handle that gives you a full range of motion. The Backblade 2.0 is the easiest do-it-yourself back and body shaver, period. And it comes with two of their unique Dry Glide patented safety blades, which create the smoothest shave, wet or dry, in just minutes. Get your Backblade today at Backblade.com and use promo code SHAVE30 to save 30% on a start bundle because at Backblade, we've got your back.